Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. So Larry, baseball is still on the minds of uh, both of us and I wanted to ask you about some of the old masters that you really wanted to talk about as well as that sound never to be forgotten. But let's take a look at some names here, and I, I see Juan, Tom, and Ricky. So let me start with Juan. Would that be Juan Marichal? Uh, that would be Juan Marichal. Sure, Juan, Tom, and Ricky. You know, I was delighted sometimes that um, the Braves used to do this back in the 40s. They'd uh, bring up, uh, they'd make contracts with Hall of Famers that were a little past their prime. I mean, I think uh, Mort Cooper played here. I think uh, the other Cooper, who was a uh, pitcher, they were a pitcher-catcher combination. And uh, the Wayner brothers, both in the Hall of Fame. And uh, there were other great players. So as far as the Red Sox were concerned, was I happy when uh, the uh, when Juan Marichal showed up in the penultimate next to last season of his major league career? He had a five and one record with the Red Sox. And Lois and I were sitting behind the screen one night. And, you know, he had this high leg kick, mm. Juan Marichal. Yeah. And he, and he, he, he pitched a beautiful game. I, I forget whether it was a shutout or one run, but he won. And I don't forget the game because, of course, Juan Marichal, I guess, is in the Hall of Fame. And he's he was just a, you know, a terrific pitcher. So I used to like it when older guys came. Now, a little while later, Tom Seaver, who oh, just died fairly recently, right. came to the Red Sox. And I we were out there for the last game he ever pitched in the major leagues. Um, he the time he was here, I think his record was good, five and three or something like that. And he coached the younger uh, Roger Clemens at that time and helped him a lot. And um, so that when Tom was with the Red Sox, he helped. And I was looking forward. They they won the pennant that season, but Tom in that game that we saw hurt his knee. You know, he had a he used to come he used to pitch very hard, he had a great fastball. And his knee would come down close to the ground, and his knee came too close to the ground, and he injured himself. And if my recollection is correct, he never pitched in the major leagues again. Um, so uh, Tom Seaver sticks in my mind, especially since he was such a handsome guy. The women loved him. Oh, he was such a nice person, too. Uh, Very A nice guy. person. He was it, redolent, if that's the right word, of that famous guy from the aughts and the teens who was gassed in the First World War and died in the 20s, um, the famous right-hander um, that his name will come to me, pitched for the Giants. Uh, little before yours truly's time. <laughs> you no, know, well— um, Was he a, a Hall of Famer, of course? Always a Hall of Famer. Grover yeah. Cleveland? No, it was in that era. He's Walter little, Johnson? No, a little earlier than that. Okay. And he was a wonderful pitcher. It'll come to me. But in any but any in any event, that was a great experience, Tom Seaver. And then Ricky Henderson Oh yes. came here. And it that was like the next to last season he played. And he was like forty three at the time. Do you know that he had a twenty five year career? And um Ricky Henderson, um, as a matter of fact, holds the record still for runs scored, stolen bases, um, 
Ricky Henderson was an absolutely wonderful player. I mean, he was a speedster who hit 300 home runs. He was a Red Sox nemesis for many years. Red Sox nemesis. But, you know, even in that down, you know, downward spiral that he went through at the end of his career at age 43 or 4 when he played for the Red Sox, he still had a terrific on-base percentage. And um, he still was a, a threat to come around. You know, he's another guy like uh, Mookie Betts. If Ricky Henderson got on first base, there was a very good chance he could score. Mm-hmm. I think he, as I, didn't I just say that he holds the all-time record for yes. runs scored? By the way, our crack research department uh, digging into that pitcher, at, and it's a name everybody should know who knows baseball, Christy Matheson. Right, Christy Matheson. So I just wanted to let you know, we've got a research crew working round the clock while you're speaking to make sure that everything is you know, if you, buttoned if, up tight. If you look up Christy Matheson, though, he, like Tom Seaver, was a wonderful guy and a very intelligent guy, a college graduate. Did he go to Bucknell? Is that the name of the university? And um, he um, uh, he pitched, uh, won three games in one of the World Series. His uh, his record is, is yep. fantastic. His lifetime earned run average must be below 250 or something like that. Your, your recollection is, is ridiculous off the charts. He did go to Bucknell. And uh, he's the most famous dropout, they say, leaving in 1900 to play ball. And then uh, he, he assumed that he died due to the uh, inhalation of poison gas in France. He died of tuberculosis at 45. Yeah. Wow. And he, handsome, absolutely handsome guy like Tom Seaver. Let's talk about, well, I've mentioned this a few times in preparation, a sound never to be forgotten. That could be anything in a baseball park, uh, the crack of the bat, the pitch coming in as a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. I have no idea where you're going with this, so let's find out. It was a horrific sound. Put it oh, 1967, August? I believe so. Tony Canigliaro yeah, getting hit right, in the face. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sitting in the third base stands with Lois and a couple. You're at that game. That's yeah, important to say. I was okay. at that. All right. And I'm at that game and sitting in the third base stands, Lois and uh, – uh, friends, the Rothsteins, uh, he's gone now. Uh, his wife still survives. His two kids are, three kids, and the two boys are very, very successful. Peter Rothstein, who's the head of the, uh, who's the president uh, at the um, school uh, Perkins Institute for the Blind, and the other son, Peter, who did very well uh, and I think just retired in the some form of the communications industry. And they had with them a German girl who was staying with them in some sort of an exchange program. And we're all watching the game, and uh, Tony comes up, and the pitcher is uh, Jack Hamilton, I think, for Los Angeles, mm. and threw the ball high and tight. And don't forget that Tony Conigliaro, at that time, was the youngest player ever to reach the 100-home run plateau. Yeah, what was he, 22 or so? Yeah, he, no, he was, he was young. He Very was, young. He was headed to a, uh, you know, a Hall of Fame career for sure. Uh, a clutch hitter and a colorful guy, another handsome kid. And um, so the ball, when it hit him, made this sound like no other sound you've ever heard. And Tony dropped immediately to the ground. They had to carry him off the field. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew that it was something serious. And essentially what happened is that it really killed him. Um, It didn't kill him right away, but what happened? It was took a strange course. Uh, in the pictures showed this his face blackened near his eye, 
He lost his sight for a while. Then it returned, but not uh, not good enough to play ball. And then amazingly, his sight did return, and he played ball uh, uh, well enough to hit 30 home runs one season, but then it declined again. And ultimately, he was never the same. His whole future had been taken away from him. And he had a stroke and then a heart attack and was reduced to being in a wheelchair and died, I think, at 43 or 4, something like that. And and there's no direct proof, or maybe there is, but that incident probably led to his early demise. Yeah, I think think the Uh, chain of events. And didn't uh, Major League Baseball institute a a change in terms of protective gear and the helmet? Uh, Wasn't that when the flap, the ear flap that would protect the face was developed because of that incident? Probably, although I can't tell you for sure. But I think that they wear much more protection mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that comes now, if somebody gets, it could still hurt somebody if they got hit. You know, if a ball got under their cap and hit oh, their yeah, forehead. Yeah. Do you remember? Uh, well, certainly Ken Coleman, the great announcer, and the Impossible Dream album that came out in 1960, end of '67, beginning of '68, which was a recap of the season and all the highlights. And I'll never forget listening to Ken Coleman. It was all done in poetry. Then one August night, the kid in right lies sprawling in the dirt. Is Tony badly hurt? And then who will carry us from here? And of course, who did carry them from there? But Yaz, Carl Yastrzemski. Well, you know, I don't have we. I think we've talked about Yaz, haven't we? Uh, not enough. <laughs> well, I think Yaz was uh, was certainly one of the two or three greatest players in Red Sox history. I think is I think Carl Yastrzemski, who really was shy. And didn't want to, he didn't want to bathe in the limelight. But he was an incredible player. I mean, if you look at his record, it's amazing. He played 23 seasons and he hit close to 500 home runs and he batted in and scored over 1,800 runs, I think. Uh, he was the three time batting champion uh, and. Triple um, crown. And he triple crown winner. And he was a wonderful fielder at first base and left field. Mm. And he was, everybody relied upon him because he was a very good clutch hitter. And he was, you know, he wasn't, a, he didn't think that he had terrific natural ability. You could easily believe that his success was due to his dedication and commitment to being the best athlete he could be. And I think he was the best athlete that he could be. I don't think he had the natural ability of a guy like Ted Williams. I don't think he had the natural ability of 10 other guys that have played for the Red Sox. But I think what he did have was a seriousness of purpose that, and a desire to excel that, uh, that made him an extremely valuable player for a very long time. And I have, I have nothing but admiration for Kyle Yastrzemski because I think he was not only a great player and as far as his baseball life was concerned, a great person. And I have no reason to think that he was other than a fine person because he lived a good family life. There was once some talk of a divorce from his wife and I guess they, I think they patched it up and, uh, and he was just, uh, you know, I talked before on one of the earlier podcasts that we did uh, about the, why a baseball player's 
so important in our lives. And I think that uh, Karl Yastrzemski was a role model because, uh, you know, at the beginning of his career, he didn't. He used to hit inside out to left field uh, a lot of the times. But in 1967, he suddenly discovered his pull swing and his home run swing. And, you know, the the difference was remarkable. He used to think of him as a guy that could hit the fence, but he didn't think of him as a really power hitter. He hit maybe a max of 20 home runs in those seasons. And in 1967, suddenly he was hitting balls into the right field bleachers. Didn't look like the same Kanye Stramski. Anyway, yeah, and I thought he was great. He he was something else. And uh, that was my era as a kid, you know, growing up and watching that season and and just praying that they beat Minnesota those two games, and they did in 67. What an amazing time that was. Let's talk about Ian Kinsler's revenge. <laughs> Ian Kinsler was another guy who came to us late in his career. And uh, remember he played here a couple of years ago? I do. At second base? And uh, he made one error that they all hold against him. But a, he- a Hebrew player. I oh, he's a Jewish player, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole story. Now the story, I'll tell you, uh, his revenge. I wanted to get Ian Kinsler in my book on American Jews in America's Game. So I didn't really know whether he was Jewish, but as it turned out, he was. But I, I, he was playing for the Texas Rangers at that time, and he, had a, he was great for the Texas Rangers. This, this, is a, this is a great story. It might take me a few minutes um, to tell. But... Um, try and shorten it a little bit. Okay. But anyway, he played for them. And I got in touch with uh, uh, a fellow who was the public relations director at that time for Texas, John Blake. Earlier, he had been the public relations guy for the Red Sox. And John Blake was the guy that got me into the, at uh, Fort Myers, that got me into the inner sanctum where I met uh, Euclid and interviewed him, where I met Breslow and interviewed him, where I met Manny Ramirez, who sort of interviewed me. And um, uh, Kevin Euclid sent me away because, don't you know you can't bother a player when they're eating? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I saw other things in, in there that w- w- was fascinating. So that um, – but anyway, so Blake uh, – well, the, when I first got in touch with Texas, they said, he's not Jewish. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, that said he's not Jewish. So then um, later I got in touch with Blake the, a couple of years later – and to set up an interview, it turns out in the meantime, he was Jewish. father grew up in the Bronx. He became, of all things, a prison warden in Arizona. And he was a tough father bringing up uh, Ian. Ian was not particularly religious. He ultimately married a woman who's not Jewish. Um, but he, uh, he finally figured out that to be Jewish, uh, to be a Jewish major leaguer, was, ha- was to have a built-in fandom so that um, – he started to admit his being Jewish, and he'd gone to bar mitzvahs and this, that, and the other thing um, because of his, you know, his parentage. Um, I think there's – did I say his father was not married to a Jewish No, you married to a Catholic woman, I believe. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that so that he, he did arrange an interview, and he said, come down at 3.30, whatever it was. It was a night game that night. Now, Kinzer had been on a hitting streak the night before. He had hit two home runs against uh, – I think Tampa Bay. So he was on a hitting streak. And uh, so uh, he says, well, we're going to do it in the clubhouse. So he takes me into the walkway from the dugout to the clubhouse, which I'd never been in before. So I'm saying, hey, John, we're walking where, you know, 
This is an old ballpark. I mean, this is where Ty Cobb walked. Well, you can't imagine how close and how narrow the walkway is. And then you get into the clubhouse, and it's bedlam because all these players are milling around, and it's small. And he says, this is, uh, this is Ian. So I said, oh, hi, Ian. Yeah. So I said, uh, yeah, we're going to do it here. So um, I said, well, you know, Ian, uh, it's really noisy in here. We're going to record it. Oh, you're going to record it? I said, yeah, yeah, I think that's the best way to do it. So he said, I said, and I think really if we walked out to the dugout, it would be quiet there. He said, okay. So I say to myself, man, that sounds like a good guy. So we walk out there, and we sit down side by side. And the inside, it was going to be 10 minutes, and I didn't know how long it was going to be outside. So we're sitting there, and we're looking at this huge, you know, Fenway looks huge when you, uh, when you see it empty. So I said to him, just to make a little conversation before we got started, you see that red seat way up on the right field bleachers? He said, uh, I said, uh, he said, yeah. I said, yeah, I was here that day in 1946 hmm. when Ted Williams hit a ball off that, uh, off that seat that bounced up to the last row of the bleachers. And I said, I'll grant that there was a little bit of a, you know, west wind that day, but my God, it was unbelievable. He must have been a hurricane. Yeah, he says. So I chuckled at that one, and I said, "I'm gonna." I said to myself, "I'm gonna flip this recorder because this guy will make a good interview." Well, he was very forthright and wonderful in the interview, and I'm not gonna say all the things he said in the interview. But he told me about his personal life, his baseball life, what he hoped for after he retired, this and the other thing. It was a very, very nice interview. So John Blake came five minutes up at about the 25 minute mark. He said. Uh, Ian is wanted for a clubhouse meeting. I said, well, give me a few more minutes. Well, I stretched it out to five, and then he went back inside. And, you know, sitting next to him, his legs were all chopped up because he was a second baseman. You can't believe what these guys go through. He looked like his legs, you know, wasn't wearing his socks at the time. Look like he's gone through a meat grinder. Oh, my gosh. And um, and I said to him at one point, I said, did you get in, uh, get a good night's sleep? He said, well, we got here at 6 a.m. And uh, not very good. We were taken right to the hotel. We Come out here, I haven't slept much. So anyway, I said to John, I said, well, uh, we'll see what happens in the game. I hope he doesn't do tonight what he did for uh, against uh, the uh, the Tampa Bay. Well, he really was on a roll. He hit a home run that night. He he, he was outstanding in the whole three-game series. Uh, he hit a home run on Sunday. Uh, he was on base all the time, made some great fielding plays, and then went on after that. Uh, on an, uh, his his uh, barrage continued for six games. So over that ten game period, he hit something like seven home runs, mm. batted in eleven, scored fifteen, uh, and raised his average from I don't know two seventy to two ninety five. Even so late in the season, he was he was it was crazy. So at that time, um, the president of uh, the Rangers was um, Nolan Ryan, so I, I said. So I wrote a letter to Blake and some of the other people. I said, "Do I have?" I was kidding, of course. Do I have magic abilities? I mean, what? I mean, I interview the guy and look what he's done. I mean, from the day I interviewed him, had to be you. Yeah. So I said, "Do you want me to come down?" I said, "My rates are very low." I said, <laughs> "Are you going into the World Series? Do you want me to come down and you know spread the my good karma?" Over the whole team, oh, I said, and um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I was kidding about it, but um, nice story. And by the way, I was just reading about Ian. He, he apparently had asthma, has asthma, and he had to deal with that as well as 
you know, all the other things that players have to deal with, including getting spiked in the knees, as you say, at a, at a second base location. That is a tough position when those guys come barreling in uh, to do that. Let's talk about two more issues. Um, one of them, speaking of, of the Jewish influence, Chaim Bloom. He is the general manager of the Red Sox, and it has been for a couple of years now. And uh, much like a predecessor, Theo Epstein, uh, young, brilliant, uh, and baseball savvy. What do you What do you want to talk about when it comes to Chaim? Well, I'll talk a little. Uh, well, Chaim is a, is he really a nice guy? And um, you know, you you know me, Jordan. You know that I'm given to doing these crazy things, like writing to people, whether they're classical musicians or Red Sox. I know that. So when I'm interested in writing a book, as I've done about classical music that's coming out soon, and as I did about baseball. Um, I get in touch with people because you get if they if they will talk to you and for some reason they do talk to me, you get all sorts of material, a lot of which is unique is you know not known before. So it's a great thing. So Haim and I, I wrote to Haim. I've never met him to this day, but we became sort of pen pals, and so we would write back and forth. Now, I told him that uh, speaking of this time, I was. At the ballpark, when Ted Williams hit this famous home run, I um, nobody believed me, even though it was written up in the papers the next day. Nobody would believe me. I mean, Theo Epstein <laughs> said, I've seen David Ortiz hit the ball as hard as anybody could, and it never came close to that. That was, you know, David Ortiz could hit it 20 rows up. Ted Williams hit it 40 rows up. So that um, nobody believed it. But Himes said to me, this is back and forth in email. He said, I, I do believe you. He said, I, there's something about the way you write it and the way you tell it that I believe that it happened. So I wrote a story based on talking with Haim and he believing it about that home run and sent it into the Baseball Journal 9, and it's going to be published later this year. And Haim Bloom is this, along with Ted Williams, is the star of that story. So I stopped writing to him for a little while at the end of this last season because he loves uh, he loves uh, the manager. And um, I thought that some of his decisions on bringing in relief pitches was very poor mm-hmm. toward the end of the season when they played that playoff series. So that um, uh, – but then I, I, I wrote to him about a week, a week or two ago and I said that's why I stopped writing for a while because I didn't want to – I didn't want to bother you about that stuff, but now I'm writing again. <laughs> he probably gets his share of notes and letters from people. And he wrote right back. I yeah. Mean, so and, he, and he's an Orthodox Jew. He we, is. He celebrates Sabbath and uh, keeps yeah. kosher. And and at Yale, he majored in uh, he majored in the in Roman studies of uh, the 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 100 years between the time of Caesar and Augustus and Christ and all that. And I'm a great fan of that particular period. So that's what he studied. Far cry from baseball. But we shared that as well. Finally, let's talk about uh, two more names. And I think I can guess on this one. Bud and Mariano. It's not Bud Abbott. It's got to be Bud Selig, I'm guessing. Am I right? Yeah, Bud Selig wrote the preface for my book, American Jews in America's Game. But I had never met him. And it was a great preface. And then... um, uh, the the other fellow there, Mariano, of course, the greatest relief pitcher in baseball history. Who, who got an amazing and beautiful send-off at Fenway, if you recall. Oh, yeah. 
Beautiful. Well, that plays into what we said before right. about baseball fan and Mariano. As a matter of fact, he wasn't exactly unsuccessful pitching against the Reds. Oh my God, he would... in in Boston. But he did he did get hit here more than anybody else. Nobody hit him very much. You know, Bill Miller got that clutch uh, hit through the middle of that's him. right. And um, so that uh, so there came a day in the second game of the World Series against the Cardinals in two thousand whatever it was. Um, uh, and 13, I mean, I, so the year escapes me, but it's around that time. And um, the fellow who's the public relations director for Major League Baseball, who's a very good guy, um, Pat uh, Courtney, uh, got in touch with me and said, the day is here, Larry, where you can meet, uh, uh, and he was the one who engineered the preface. And so Pat says, uh, come down to Fenway Park, and they're going to honor Mariano Rivera and, and Bud Selig is going to be here. So I went there, so I'm sitting there, and up on the dais, about 10 feet from me, is is Pedro, Mariano, Bud. Sitting next to me is uh, the manager, Joe Torrey. There's some royalty there, boy. And it was a very nice little thing. And then in the anteroom, I went into the anteroom, and uh, before the picture was taken of me and Bud Selig, um, I had a conversation with Mariano, very nice guy, and he was there with his family and kids. And then, uh, and then Pat says, "Come on over," and the picture was taken with my arm around him and his arm around me. And afterwards, Pat Courtney says to me, "He doesn't do that unless he likes somebody." Ah, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, being ingratiating as you are, and knowing and loving baseball as much as you are. I'm not surprised, but. But we've mentioned some amazing uh, names, and uh, probably you know many more names out there that are, that are going to come up in future podcasts. But uh, Mariano Rivera, per- perhaps the greatest reliever of all time, wouldn't you say? I think he is the greatest reliever of all time. Another name was uh, the one we brought up before, Dick Flavin. Can yes, I say a few yes. words about him? Uh, Dick is a wonderful man. I know him well. Member of the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Go oh, ahead. is he really? Yeah. Well, yeah, you know that. Uh, I spoke earlier about his uh, interview of um, uh, of uh, Dom DiMaggio. And at that time in 2000, I looked at it, and I've known Dick all that time, but I had forgotten what a good-looking guy. He was very handsome at that particular time. He still is very nice-looking. But anyway, as you say, Dick Flavin is really a gentle soul. He's a wonderful guy. And uh, the reason I wanted to mention him is because he has such an amazing history. Um, you know, I've done a few things with him at the um, at the uh, uh, society, the Massachusetts Historical Society. I chaired a program, and he was one of the panelists that I had. The other one was um, the fellow who was Bill Nolan, who has a big had a big history in the music business, mm-hmm. and then as a baseball writer, and so that uh, that was very interesting. I mean, here's a guy who wrote uh, a play that was very popular about Tip O'Neill, the great uh, Speaker of the House. Yeah, starring Ken Howard, if I'm not mistaken, the late actor who played in The White Shadow. But go ahead. And he also rode down all the way from Massachusetts to Florida uh, in an automobile with Dom DiMaggio uh, and Johnny Pesky to visit Ted Williams in his waning days mm. in Florida and I used to say to Dick, why didn't you write the book that uh, Halberstam wrote <laughs> <laughs> about 
this these this famous friendship. Uh, and uh, he's a poet, poet laureate of the Red Sox. He's so-called. He's written books with his poetry. He recites his poetry. There's a, there's humor and love in the makeup of Richard Dick Flavin. I use when I write to him. I say, uh, I, "What's the expression I use?" King Richard. I say. And by the way, you can hear his voice occasionally at Fenway. He does some announcements. Oh, that's another thing I meant to mention. They made him. I made him the uh, public address announcer of the Red Sox. So Dick has had a very colorful life, and I haven't spoken to him for a while. Have you spoken to him lately? Uh, not lately, but I read his columns. He sends them out um, uh, on email blasts, and he's constantly writing, much like you. He's, he's at it every day, I think. Yeah, and he's a little younger, he's, but he's, I think he's in his 80s by now. Must be, must be. And uh, But I have a really, you know, it's not unusual. I think most people have a warm spot in their heart for Dick Flavin. Because it's hard, I, you know, he never did anything that that I thought was any anything other than likable. Well, uh, I couldn't agree more. He's a terrific gentleman, as are you, and we've covered a lot of ground. More to come. Thank you, my friend, for uh, opening up and sharing. Not hard for you to do that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love to do it with you, Jordan, because you make it so easy to do. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.